Welcome back to the program. The world of historical fiction always plays an interesting role. On the one hand, it's an entertaining way for us to understand, and often from 30,000 feet, to see the broad historical sweeps of history. But beyond that, it's an opportunity for us to see up close and personal how conflict, change, stress, fear, and intimacy affects the human condition. To see how others act and to better understand and appreciate the diversity of human experience in our current world. That's what my guest Mark Fine has done in looking back at apartheid South Africa in the late 1970s. Mark Fine was born in Johannesburg, South Africa. He's made the U.S. his home since 1978. He spent many years in the entertainment industry, and he has just written his first novel, The Zebra Affair. It is my pleasure to welcome Mark Fine to the program today. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Great to have you here. Do you think that enough time has now passed since the end of apartheid to really be able to look back at it objectively and understand really what transpired and why? Yes, and for this reason. The book is set in 1976, and conventional wisdom suggests that history, it has to, the event has to be at least 50 years old. I did some research with this, and the best and most appropriate contemporary definition I got, it becomes a matter of history when the event reaches full closure, when the cycle is complete. And with Mandela's ascendancy to the presidency, apartheid was kind of committed to this sort of trash can of history. So it is historical. It is long enough because the cycle is finished and it is worthy of another um, inspection. Talk a little bit about your own experience, what you remember from the, the short time that you grew up there and, and how that really played a role in what you said as the backdrop for the zebra affair. I found that we not based on, on a lack of care or, or um, a lack of um, involvement, but we were terribly myopic. Uh, in part, government censorship played a role in it. In part, things like media. We never had television in South Africa until 1976. And when you don't have that sort of bright, wide window on your world reflecting back at you what's happening, you tend to be um, stuck more in what's happening in your own back backyard. And so I found it only came alive to me after I made my first trip to the United States in 1978. And the whole narrative of what represented black enterprise and brilliance and the like suddenly became clear to me. And in the book, I talk about a moment when the patriarch in the book goes and sees a film by uh, Sidney Poitier mm -hmm. and how profoundly it shaped him because for the very first time in his life, he saw this erudite, elegant, sophisticated, assertive black man in a way he never knew a black man could be because the South African authorities banned Sidney Poitier movies. They had no television, so he could never see any black excellence. And tragically, the contemporary South African black or native never saw someone of the same um, color hue be excellent. And so we were all in this 
delusional world of not understanding anything than a black is a laborer and the white is a master and that is the way it is and was. And so it, it was a strange Pavlion, Pavlovian kind of existence. You either had to travel or the media had to bring reality into your backyard. And what it really does in, in so many respects is provide such a stark contrast to the reality of revolutions today, where the biggest object of the exercise for those that are trying to to maintain the status quo is to, as you talk about even then, keep out cultural influences, keep out the power of, of Western ideas and movies and music and everything that goes along with it. Much, much harder to do today, almost impossible to do. But in those days, it was very possible to do. And you see the influence of shutting out those influences in South Africa. As you know, I'm a product of the entertainment industry, and often one can people see the entertainment industry as a silly, trivial business. And I found in writing this book how immensely important the media was. I mean, there's one example of the role of Bob Marley's song War, Heidi Selassie's uh, speech to the United Nations that Marley put to music. And this song was been so pirated through the townships and it was becoming a war cry and the authorities were scared of it the tv was you know invisible i mean the government called it the devil's box they knew it was a pandora's box and if it came about it would open um, a window on the world they did not want us to see I mentioned also Sixto Rodriguez, you know, the famous Searching for Sugar Man story that the Oscar Award documentary, how this man from Detroit, who we all thought was long dead, was an absolute poet to us. He was our generation's Dylan. Um, these people profoundly shaped thought. Talk a little bit about how you decided to, to really incorporate that, to use it within the context of the story that you tell in The Zebra Affair. To me, the status quo looked like it would go on forever. Uh, you had this oppressive regime in power since 1948. It had the might of government, authority, guns, thuggish behavior. Um, it seemed absolutely mutable. And then, very deliberately, I choose 1976 as the year where Elza, white woman, falls in love with Stanwell, a black man. And I wanted it to be 1976 for three reasons. One, January 1976, television is first introduced. And that's terribly important when you think in the tip of Africa, we were the only nation that never saw the lunar landing. And it gave us a great complex about it. You know, we'd see it so four weeks late in movie tone news. And so that became, uh, uh, South Africans are proud people, you know, warriors run the rugby field. And I think even that made the authorities feel appalled. But also in 1976, there were the 1976 Soweto riots, where the Afrikaners wanted to impose the language of Afrikaans on the townships, 
So the people they have, in a sense, are using the enslaved in quotation marks, were going to be educated in the language of their masters, not in their mother tongues. And they had to learn European history, not their own native history. And so the blacks, quite correctly, went on, on, you know, that's when the riots and the revolution began. And at that moment, for the first time, you had the spotlight of television documenting this terribly vicious, you know, the attack dogs and the pangas and the, sh- the whips and the guns and the smoke and the hippo, um, you know, sort of armored cars and all. And it was playing in our living rooms. And also because TV was so introduced, so newly introduced, that something I'd never seen before, but our domestic servants, our black staff, were invited into the living room to watch this new magic box. And so everybody was getting this information at the same time. And I felt that was a moment of seismic change in the dynamics of power. It was, to me, was the beginning of the end. The other thing that plays into as part of this is the degree to which the interracial couple at the center of this story, Elsa and Stanwell, are coming at it from two, not just different colors, but two so powerfully different social and cultural contexts. Talk about that. That's a very um, interesting question because the Africana, and just a bit of background, there are two white classes in South Africa. The Africana are those from Dutch extraction. The Dutch arrived in 1652 in South Africa. And um, they always saw themselves as Africa's first legitimate white tribe. They never saw them as a, themselves as a colonial presence. They saw themselves as an integral part of the continent, so much so they severed any links back with Mother Holland. And so you had... These very stubborn, very courageous, but very tiny community that always had these major sort of self-esteem issues. The British were going to try try and take the nation from them. This overwhelming uh, population of indigenous blacks were a threat. And so they started creating these various artifices to protect them. And one of the most obtuse ones is something that was called the Immorality Act of 1957, and that is any sex across the color divide is a crime, punishable with seven years' imprisonment for each of you. And so, and that instinct was my attraction, always wanting to do a love story, but not wanting to do one with a couple quibbling, you know, who kept the toilet seat up. I, I think falling in love and knowing you could go to jail for seven years let alone the disgrace from your church and your family. I thought the stakes were very high. So, so here is Elsa, an African girl, who's going against the wishes of her church, her, fa- her father, her culture, her Bible, the law of her land, all that. But I want to emphasize something very that I think is a very important line in the book. I think a profound one. I say, Elsa was not a racist. She didn't have to be. Her government assumed that responsibility. 
And so what I am trying to say, though she was a party of the racist um, behavior, it never was a personal subjective decision. She wasn't burdened with that. There was just rules. At, through that door, white center, and through that door, black center. She didn't have to think about it. And it was important because the relationship with Stanl wasn't a person who had to surmount hatred. It just wasn't the, she was breaking the laws of the land. But that's her mindset. Stanwell was different, and, and you might have noticed, I said specifically, Stanwell was an immigrant from Malawi. In other words, he wasn't a domestic South African black. And I did that deliberately because apartheid is reprehensible, and the lack of uh, human dignity and, and the suffering is very, very real. But what is not acknowledged that a country like Malawi, free nation, I think liberated in 1962 by the English, under the, uh, their own president, Banda, was so cruel to tribal minorities, which Stanwell was, a member of the Chua tribe, that he found by necessity, as a free man, he had to travel down south to South Africa to live under the bondage of apartheid just so he could make a living. And to me, that is critical because there's a notion of freedom but starvation or having a full belly but being um, trussed up in this awful artifice. And blacks across Africa make, were forced to make these terrible, terrible decisions um, that they would willfully go down to this terrible country with this terrible social order just so they could feed their bellies and send money back home. And I just needed to add that dynamic because I, 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 I basically feel it's symptomatic of a greater issue in the continent of Africa. One of the other issues that it, it speaks to, and I'm sure there are many others, but one that it speaks to is this sense of, of bigotry and hatred even among tribal groups that in many cases rivals the racial attitudes that, that you write about? It's that, there, there are two aspects of that that are very appalling to me. Apartheid rules define laws of engagement. Um, the laws in themselves are unkind, but clearly when left in the hands of a spiteful bureaucrat or a um, misanthropic um, uh, police officer or a um, farmer out on his own sort of empire, cruel, 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 terrible things happen. But most times, if you at least conformed within those rules of engagement, you have a second-class citizen and a first-class citizen, and yes, there's the past laws restricting your movement and the like, and it's, again, all awful. But strangely, at the center of it, there wasn't this visceral one-on-one -on -one hatred, true hatred. But where I, I pull, back, pull back the um, layers of the onion is I first take us to the white classes, the English speakers, the English arrived in 1820 and the Dutch already spoke about. 
and you realize that in the Boer War has never ended. And the Dutch and the English speakers detest each other. And, and, and so at, at a level that I remember from my rugby days at high school, if I played rugby against an Afrikaans school, the score on the scoreboard was irrelevant. We were recasting the Anglo-Boer War all over again. So you've got, you've, and so these are personal decisions. But worse is the rivalry between the Zulus and the Sutus and the Vendas and the Tswanas and Lawses is so corrosive. And that, to me, is one of the motives why I wrote the book, because I always question how come so few whites could exert their dominion over so many blacks. And when you break the blacks down into tribal factionalism, then you understand that there was no way that uh, because of the sort of scourge of tribalism would the black community band together to shed white rule. They could not. Tribalism trumped everything. And I find that is the ultimate sin. In other words, in the world of isms like communism and colonialism and imperialism and anti-Semitism, racism, I believe the uh, tribalism, tribalism is the mother of all isms and is the ultimate corrosive influence throughout the continent of Africa, let alone South Africa. And I do want to emphasize that I'm not, this isn't an indigenous people plight. In other words, I, in the book I talk about Yugoslavia and once strongman Tito disappeared, as it were, how Yugoslavia balkanized and fragmented into that awful battle. In other words, this, the scourge of tribalism just makes people behave awfully badly. And I, I, if I recall, I do have a little lesson in the book. I use the animal kingdom, which was so close to all of us, for a kind of parable. And I note that the ostrich, the wildebeest, and the, and the zebra all group together when they're on their sort of African savannas, right? And one is a feathered plumage. The other have two different, very different hides. But one can see, one can smell, and one can hear. And these three different species work close together to, for the common good to protect all of them from the predators. And I do wistfully say, boy, wouldn't it be nice if the Boer, the Brit, and the Bantu for common good have come together and shown that same sort of common sense survival instinct instead of sabotaging and destroying each other all the way down the line. Of course, tribalism, where tribalism is different from all those other isms, yeah. is that it becomes less about ideology, less about politics, less about positioning and more about the fundamental nature of human na of human beings to want to associate with and be with people like themselves. You know, in the abstract, I, I, you know, it, New York's full of little Italy's and Chinatowns. In other words, there's the cultural enrichment and, and, and the ability of being with a people that with a nod or with an expression of a, you know, they... they you can say a thousand words and, and all this wonderful tradition and bond comes forth. 
what I am finding, though, and, and in an African thing, uh, taking it from the quaint aspect, the bees, the tribal dances, the, 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 the you know, the loincloths and like have this tourist or charm about it. And all that cultural richness, I believe, is like an iceberg. It's just sort of superficial on top. But to me, under the iceberg, that 90% under is dark and bleak and nihilistic. I'll, let me explain it this way. I believe Africa is an extraordinary continent. I believe the people are hardworking and enterprising. I believe the fertile earth and the terrific game and the, the, the platinum, bauxite, diamonds, whatever under the ground is extraordinary. I have seen, when I see a, a, a woman walk 10 miles with five-gallon jug of water on her, you know, balance on her head to make sure her family have water to cook in and do the ablutions. I mean, that is such hard, dedicated effort. And in other words, I'm saying the potential is extraordinary, and yet it keeps failing. And on closer analysis, I, I, I saw a pattern. And as the colonial powers moved out, and I'm going to blame England a lot on this, they said, let's make these countries democracies. On principle, lovely, lovely idea. So whether it was Malawi or M Zimbabwe or everywhere in between, they were made democracies. But it's so clear that in the garden of tri tribalism, democracy can't flourish. And I mean it for this. Let's look at Zimbabwe. 82% of the population of Zimbabwe are Mashona. The balance of Matabili. Robert Mugabe happens to be a Mashona. Robert Mugabe is an awful, awful human being. But the Mashona will vote for him no matter what, because he, in a sense, is the paramount chief of their party. And the notion of electing people based on ideology on principle, on merit, on excellence, is trumped by my tribe and my tribe only. And that is the plague of Africa, because you aren't getting the best ideas. And why it, it disturbs me is this um, cover that democracy has provided has has legitimized actually these tribes. I mean, the, the, the political party has the freedom, something other front, but the freedom front actually represents the Mashona. And so in reality, I think until that's recognized, until we realize that we need to break this um, myopic, corrosive tribal domination over the rest of the community, I don't think we'll get out of this um, sort of death spiral of failing states. And I, I think you might remember in the book, I say something, I hope it never is true, but deliberately to be provocative, I, 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 I'd say, I'm, you know, I'm quoting myself, and I'm, I'm quoting myself badly, but I, I'm saying, I hope when looking through the rear view mirror of history, 
we don't see the colonial we don't perceive the colonial era the golden age of africa and i'm only saying that not because the colonial powers were benign but having that outside management if you will just thinking as a corporate sense when the outside management is not beholden to any of the domestic tribes things function better the tribes were kept apart um you know infrastructure was built medicine and you know and hospitals and the like agreed the the domestic black was a third class citizen in his own um country but ironically they were better functioning communities I, and i'm not advocating going back to colonialism what i'm intrigued by is there a mechanism where you get the retired president of south africa now, i'm being fa fanciful now but to be the for four years the sitting president of 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 of, of, of malawi and if he does a good job does he get his contract react i just feel something needs to be done to break this tribal stranglehold over these so-called um democracies and finally were you aware of that when you sat down to write the zebra affair talk about how many of these ideas and how much of what we've been talking about evolved as you really started moving this along the, this particular item very much so. It was probably a, a, a prime motivation for the book. I, I don't think I'm giving too much away when I talk about the, the main male protagonist, Stanwell, worked in this large uh, warehouse facility near Jansmuts International Airport. And he, he, he was a picker and packer on the floor and great, wonderful initiative, very effective manager. And but in South Africa, there's the Job Reservation Act that prevents a black person from having any authority in management. Totally prohibited. You're not allowed to be instructing whites how they should go about their business. So in this particular case, the patriarch bravely, because it's against the law of the land, he decides to fire the white man in the corner office and move Stanwell into the corner office. Again, the patriarch believes he's doing something wonderful. Here he's setting up this example of black excellence, and the other black staffers would be thrilled to see someone like them uh, is now the boss and would be aspirational. And um, in a sense, all ships would rise in, in, the, in, in, in the harbor. Unfortunately, the reverse happened, and just chaos, stealing, um, packages lost, uh, deliveries broken, I, I mean, just chaos, and could not be understood because, again, the patriarch knew that Stanwell had the intellect. It then turned out that because Stanwell was from a smaller tribe, he was being sabotaged by the domestic tribes. It was repugnant to them to have another black man from a competing tribe manage them than a white man who they also hated. In this, same, this perversion, I knew of these experiences in, in our life there. And so that for me 
was I extrapolated that if this could happen as a microcosm of a warehouse, or I tell the story a mile deep in a gold mine with the rivalry between Moses and, and the Zulus, this is a systemic problem throughout Africa, and no one, everyone tends to be focusing on notions like the colonial lines were, you know, national boundaries are inappropriate and synthetic. And the, I think those are symptoms, but I feel the root, root cause is this lack of these people to get on with one another, which brings me to the final, final point is the majesty of Mandela. Mandela is the only individual I have known that somehow surmounted all those tribal differences. He was raised as was a prince, and by all expectations in ascending to power, he should have just surrounded himself with his tribe and done what every other pontitate in Africa has always done. And he refused to do that. And I do have my reasons why, you know, the unique grace of the, the man, but I also have my other reasons why I think he came to that profoundly place of being a true statesman rather than a tribal chieftain. But I see him as a shining example that it can be done. It doesn't need an outside force, uh, you know, colonial power or whatever. Um, here's a man who gave up the reins of power voluntary five years later. But I'm sad to say, I think um, it's falling back. South Africa is slowly being drawn back into the typical cycle of the rest of the continent. But there was that one divine, extraordinary example, which I hope will be emulated uh, by others. So I have hope because Mr. Mandela... President Mandela was the first a-tribal or non-tribal um, African leader. And I hope others will follow and emulate his extraordinary example. Mark Fine, his novel is The Zebra Affair. Mark, how can people get a copy of it? Available on Amazon, in Kindle, and paperback. 350-page paperback, <laughs> if I recall. And it's... Um, Wonderful reviews. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying. I, I'm thrilled with it. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. Mark Fine. The book is The Zebra Affair. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 